Talk about it on WERU FM. I'm Patricia McLean, founder and president of the Maine based nonprofit organization Finding Our Voices, which is survivors of domestic abuse, including me, standing proud and speaking loud. The first time that he actually physically hit me, um, I was pregnant. I was about eight months pregnant. One minute he would be crying. I'm so sorry I did this to you, you know. And then five minutes later, he'd be like threatening me. You better not tell them what actually happened. I mean, it went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth until the doctor came in. And I ended up lying. I ended up lying. I told them I fell. My guest today is Amy. Amy has a terrific blog called The Biddeford Bachelorette. I met Amy just as she was about to post the entry called Love the Way You Lie, that recounts domestic terrorizing she escaped from two individuals. She is launching a website soon to further help young people recognize the signs of emotional abuse and how to deal with it. Welcome, Amy. Hi, my name is Amy. I live in Biddeford. I write a blog dedicated to dating and relationships, specifically narcissistic abuse and how to recognize it. I'm hoping that sharing my story will help other people. I have been in two relationships that were with narcissists and were very, very abusive one 20 years ago in 2003, and the other ended just recently in December of 2022. Do you want to go back to 2003? Can you recall like where you were in your life when you met this individual? Yes. So when I met this individual, I was at the top of my game. I was successful. I was happy. I was engaged to the love of my life and I was happily planning my wedding. And then I guess somewhere along the way, the person that I was engaged to and I had a few, you know, pre-wedding jitters, a few bumps in the road. And I'm someone that really likes to talk things out. So I decided that for this particular situation, I needed a male perspective And I spoke to a male friend that I had recently made and become close with. I let him know what was going on. And, you know, I let him know my insecurities, my fears, my doubts. And unwittingly, I did not realize that I was giving him the key to my own destruction. So he ended up using the information that I gave him to convince me to call off my wedding. And it all kind of went downhill from there. Do you remember his reaction when you told him that you were calling off the wedding or how that happened? It was horrible. It is a moment that I will go to my grave regretting. I simply handed back the ring and I said, you know, I... I love you very much, but I can't marry you right now. And he simply said, why? And I just said, 
I don't, I don't know. Everything's so messed up. I just need time. I just need time. For many years after I ended up marrying the narcissist, we didn't speak. He did reach out to me when Facebook became a thing and sent me a friend request. And I asked him his forgiveness. Every time I think about him in any context, I am flooded with overwhelming sadness and regret. It never occurred to me that perhaps we might reconcile because I knew he had gone on to get married. So I knew that was kind of off the table. I, I just was grateful that he had reached out to me at all. One of the reasons I'm really interested in this is, well, I grew up with abuse. So my mother and father were violent. And from the age of like, you know, 14, like the guys that I went out with, they were mean. Mm -hmm. And there was one boyfriend I had, his name was Marcel. And he was great. Like he was really kind. He really cared about me. And I broke up with him. Only later, like looking back, I realized you grow up in chaos. So you're looking for chaos. And I even remembered at the time thinking, I don't want to be happy. Isn't that weird? Like I remember yeah. with him and I'm like, I don't want to be happy. Like I want excitement. You know, I ended up, you know, being swept off my feet by someone who was very exciting. It was very chaotic, you know, and the person I married and lived with for 29 years. And during that time, especially when the abuse just got worse and worse and I was just so unhappy, I, I just, I always thought about him. So I, I really can relate to what you're saying. If we could go back to this relationship with this person that you met in 2003, could you just take me through that a little bit, how, how it started when you started noticing red flags and that kind of thing? I started noticing red flags, unfortunately, when it was too late. So this person had become my friend and my confidant. You know, I didn't recognize that what he was doing as I talked to him about the doubts that I was having about getting married was he was subtly manipulating me into thinking that the best thing for me to do would be to call off the wedding. And so after I did do that, you know, he was supportive. He let me cry on his shoulder. He helped me move. And then one day, a few weeks later, after I had moved into my new place, I was just, you know, at home one evening and he walked into my door uninvited and unannounced with a bunch of his clothes. And I was just like, what are you doing here? And he was like, well, you know, I'm here. And I said, well, we don't have plans tonight. And he said, we have plans every night. You're, you're mine now. This is how it's going to be. Like I'm moving in. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Like take a step back, slow down. You know, I told you that I am going to reconcile with my ex that I need time by myself. And he just cut me off and he said, you know, very calmly, very even keel. I'm going to make this very easy for you. If you see him again, I will kill him. If you see him again, I will kill your cats. If you see him again, I will kill your pregnant sister. I will have people monitoring you. If there's ever any contact with him again, I will kill him. This is completely out of the blue. I mean, was there anything before that was worrisome about him that you felt or a bad, bad feeling about him or anything that he said or did or anything that... Well, I mean, he seemed to want to spend an awful lot of time with me, but... 
I thought that that was just him being a good friend, you know, that he was being concerned for what I was going through and he was trying to be supportive, you know, because they're very good narcissists are at painting themselves in a very positive light. And, you know, I'm doing this because I care about you. I'm doing this for your own good, you know? And so as naive as I was at the time, I didn't realize that this in fact was a form of abuse. You know, he started taking over all my time. He started kind of, you know, making sure that I didn't talk to people who didn't agree with his point of view. It's basically the classic domestic abuser tactic, you know, isolation. Yes. I'm I'm guessing that your friends and family didn't like him. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. My family and I actually had a huge falling out when I announced my plans to marry him. My, My father in particular went ballistic, and I'm very close to my father, and we didn't speak for months They did come to the wedding, but they made it very clear that they did not approve of my decision. Did they tell you what they didn't like about him? They just said that he seemed, they they just could tell by looking at him that something was off. Like they said, his, his eyes were very blank. His displays of affection towards me bordered on, you know, territorial They didn't like the way he spoke to me in a very condescending tone of voice. You know, at first he was very careful to put up appearances around my family, but, you know, as time went on, he started to let that slide. How did you take that? Well, I knew they were right, but it was, there was nothing I could do because every time I tried to set a boundary or tell him, I don't want to marry you, I don't want you moving in, I don't want you meeting my family, well, then I guess you want your cats to die. Well, oh, so so you mean he he said that to you early on before even talking about marriage, before you were married? Right. That's how he got me to marry him, by threatening my cats, my ex, and my family. And so you were trapped, and there's no one you could t- say that. You felt you couldn't tell anybody that. I couldn't tell anybody the truth, because he said, if you tell anybody about this, your cats die, your ex dies, your pregnant sister dies. So it was a nightmare, like right from then on. I had no escape. I had no choice. I was, I was a hostage. I was a prisoner. You were a hostage. You were a prisoner of war. And how long were you with him for? Just under three years. And did it get, could it get worse? I mean, what, what, what are the kinds of things he did to you? So I remember one night in particular, I wanted to go to my company Christmas party just for a couple of hours, just to get out. And he said, if you go to that party, you will come home and find your cats hanging from trees. I love your cats. Tell me about your cats before you met him. Did you have your cats before you met him? I had one of them before I met him. The other one he got and brought into the relationship. And she only very recently passed away about a month ago. And your cats meant a lot to you. Yes. You want to talk about that, about how come you loved your cat so much or what kind of relationship you had with them and, and why that threat was so horrible to you? Well, I never had kids. So my cats were my kids. I... 
I mean, it's, it's hard to put into words the bond that you have with an animal, but, you know, these were my sweet, trusting, innocent fur babies whose welfare completely depended on me. And they were my source of comfort. They were my source of joy. And they were completely innocent and defenseless and helpless. And if anything happened to them, it would be on my shoulders. I had no doubt in my mind that he would do it. Were you able to go to work? And do you think that people on the outside thought that you were, were okay? Everyone knew because we had worked together. And he progressed into abusing me at the office. There was one time when he hauled me into a conference room and, you know, pinned me up against a wall by my throat and screamed at me and then walked out of the door like nothing ever happened. Do you feel that people knew but weren't saying anything? Or do you wish they had said anything? Talk about that, about the, how people, their inaction. So... Everyone knew because he left the company and I, I basically stopped eating because I felt like what I was eating or not eating was the only thing I had in my life that was controllable. So I rapidly lost about 70 pounds. I went from a healthy size 10 to a size double zero in the space of about three months. I was constantly crying. I was constantly shaking. I was very jumpy. There, I was just not the same person. And I was unable to perform at work. And the thing that really sticks out to me is that I had worked really hard to get a promotion into a manager role, which I did get right before he left the company. And my manager knew him, knew what was going on, and still took that role away from me because I was unable to perform. And I get that from a business perspective, but she never came to me and said, hey, what's going on with you? You know, I know something's wrong. I know you're not the same person that I promoted into this role. Like, tell me what's happening. How can I help you? How can I support you? There was none of that. And people started avoiding me and, you know, there were people who were on Team Narcissist and people that were on Team Amy, you know, because the smear campaigns that the narcissist does kind of got to everyone. So the people that were on Team Amy were very few and far between. And even those people never really said, hey, are you okay? People that you work with know you. Like you, when you work with someone, you get to know them. You need the coworkers to inquire that probably made you feel even more isolated. Absolutely. And I was trying so hard to just be normal me on the outside, but there just was no way. And I, I didn't know who the flying monkeys were. He told me that he was having people watch me so he would know if I talked to this person or that person or went out to lunch or, you know, did this or did that. And you know, if I was even a minute late getting home from work, he would question me about where I'd been and who I'd been sleeping with. And I was like, I'm a manager. Like, I can't just walk out the door at five o'clock. I'm also guessing that there was financial abuse. And how did that help? Was, yes. So when I first separated from my fiance, I bought a townhouse and I was really proud of that. It was something that I had done all on my own, saved up the down payment, gotten the financing, and it was mine. 
And I thought that no one could ever take that away from me. So he started using his manipulation tactics, you know, such as the cats or my ex or my family to sell that townhouse and buy him or buy the house that he wanted. And then the house wasn't enough. He made me buy a BMW for him. He made me buy a motorcycle for him. All of this in my name because he had really terrible credit. And, you know, he just said, well, if you don't do it, I'll kill your cats. Or I'll, you know, went after after all the papers were signed, you know, well, if you try to leave, I'll just walk away and you're going to be held with all this debt. Because it's true. Everything was in my name, not in his name. And was there sexual abuse? Yes. Did you want to say anything about that? You don't have to. And that's often, you know, that's the thing that people don't understand. Like they talk about sexual abuse and domestic abuse, but sexual abuse is so often in domestic abuse. And a lot of women will say that that's, the, they, that's something they, they will not, they did not tell the police. And it's the last thing that they would ever tell anybody. Well, I think that people think when you're in an intimate partner relationship, particularly if you're married that, you know, it, well, it can't be rape if you're married to this person and it can't be rape if you're in a relationship with this person. So my husband would very often force me to have sex when I didn't want to, coerce me into it, you know, threaten me, manipulate me. My most recent ex tried to get me to have sex with other people. That um, is, Amy, I want to just say that that is something that's quite common. And I, I don't know if women who are going through that understand that, but my eyes are so open because I talked to so many different women but that's it's it's like trafficking. It's they're trafficking you in the relationship. That's exactly what my feeling was. I was wondering if he was grooming me for something like that. And you know, that became a situation that I knew I had to leave. But you know, again, you know, you'd you'd think that it would be so easy, but when you're trauma bonded, you you it's so hard to extricate yourself. So tell me how you escape from this the first one. Before we go there, was there physical abuse with the first one? Yes. Yes. So there was the pinning up against the wall, you know, via a hand around my throat. There was shoving. There was the occasional kick, you know, he's very careful not to do anything that couldn't be explained, you know. He would pick up objects such as knives and just kind of casually carry them around. And one particularly horrifying evening, he tore our wedding picture off the wall, broke the glass, and started chasing me around with the broken glass. And I knew then that, you know, my time was up. Like, this was, he was going to kill me, or at least very seriously harm me. So I called my parents from work the next day because he monitored my phone calls. And I just said, it has to, it has to something has to happen. And they said, well, we have, we're we're giving you 48 hours to get yourself out of there, or we're coming to get you. And I said to myself, well, if they show up and he's here, he'll kill us all. He will not let me leave. So that very Sunday, fortuitously, he was going to visit his mother who was in hospice care with brain cancer and could not be exposed to any germs. So I made myself be ill that morning so that I could get out of going. And the second that 
I was absolutely certain he was gone and not coming back. I called my parents. And so my mom and a friend came, grabbed me, my two cats and my one suitcase and left and brought me to the home that my friend and my brother shared. And that was it. He came home to find me gone and there was a very big explosion but they never allowed him to see me again after that. Have you seen him since? No. It, no, this did not come to the attention of the courts. No. I mean, obviously there was a divorce, but I I did not tell them I did not tell them what was happening. And even if I had, they they wouldn't have believed me. And, and what was in the divorce settlement? Did he get most of everything or did you really lose out or how did that work out? I did mm -hmm. because basically all the debt was in my name. You know, he had helped himself to my credit cards. He had made me buy the house. So I lost all the equity because we had lived there for less than a year and I had to sell it. I couldn't afford it on my own. So they also managed to get a cash settlement for him so I left with far less than I came with. I had entered the relationship as a homeowner with very good credit. And now I had no home and a pile of debt. And that the last of that debt was paid off in March of 2022. That was his debt. His debt. And the, it's just like, it's just the, it's so bad. And then it just gets worse. Like having to give this guy money. Did, was there a, did you, he have a lawyer and did you have a lawyer? I did. Yes. And he did as well. So I was in such a disastrous shape. Like I had a complete mental breakdown. I could not function as a human being. So I gave my father power of attorney and I let my father handle the sale of the house and all of the negotiations because I just simply could not. So my dad did you know, the best he could to get me out of the situation as rapidly as possible. You know, that included leaving me with a lot of debt and a loss of a lot of money from the house sale. And that's in no way my father's fault or the court's fault. It's just that all of this happened so rapidly. You know, I had to sell a house that I had just bought. And so, of course, there was capital gains to worry about. There there was nothing to, to be done. And I had no choice in giving him money or buying him things because there was always the threat. You know, he used to pick up a cat in one hand and hold a knife in the other. Like, what, what was I supposed to do? There was no choice for me. A lot of times the woman just wants to get away, like get away, you know, and, and that's, that's why they walk away with nothing a lot of times. And sometimes if there's kids, they, they'll sign away anything just to be able to, to have their kids and not have him fight for full custody. So that's, that's how it shakes out so often. There's no justice. There's no justice at all. Hello, you are listening to Let's Talk About It on WERU-FM. Conversations with Survivors of Domestic Abuse. I am Patricia McLean, your host, founder, president of Finding Our Voices, the grassroots survivor-powered nonprofit breaking the silence of domestic abuse, one community and conversation at a time. Now let's return to my conversation with Amy, 
who has a terrific blog called Biddeford Bachelorette and who is launching a website soon to help others recognize and heal from domestic abuse hell. So tell me about how you met the next guy. So that was an online dating situation. I met him in April of 2021. How old were you? Um, I I was 49. And how how many years had passed since you had divorced this other one? We got divorced in 2006, so like 15 or 16 years. And in the intervening years, did you have good dates? Did you have good relationships? Did you what was your love life situation? No. I did not have good relationships. My relationship with my ex-husband changed everything about myself so that I was no longer able to choose good partners because, as you said earlier, volatility and instability and violence and chaos had become my new normal. So anything that felt safe felt unfamiliar and uncomfortable. So... That's what drove me to make poor choices. So I continued to date narcissists, but none of them were abusive or exploitive or exploitative, I should say, to the extent that this particular individual that we're going to talk about was. Okay. And let's Um, set it up to tell me what your first impression of him was. Oh, he was very charming, very handsome, very nice set himself up as someone who was looking for his forever girl, which he knew appealed to me because I had said in my profile, you know, I'm done with all the games. I really just want to find my person. So he painted himself to be that person, painted himself as someone who had been hurt before and knew what it felt like, didn't want anyone else to feel that type of pain, you know, was ready to really step up and be a good partner to his forever person. It's like in these dating profiles, you just give them the information they they need to yep. trap you, you know? Yep. Yep. So that's why I'm firmly against online dating. It's just way too easy for people to be shapeshifters and disguise themselves into being whatever they think you want them to be. Whatever you put out there that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so tell me about this. Again, I always say I'm guessing about this because it's just such a pattern, but did he sweep you off your feet? Oh, he certainly did. Yes, he most certainly did. Told me he loved me within a month. You know, naturally, that should have been a red flag. But, you know, I was like, I was like some. I just want to say that my ex told me that night that he loved me. The night we met. met. Yeah. And looking back on it now, like he didn't know me. So if you don't know, it's flattering, but it shouldn't be flattering because he he doesn't know me when he says that. And even, you know, so but that's something that I, I just didn't realize. He was like an oasis in the desert for me because I had been so starved for affection and just really hadn't been seen in or accepted in a relationship for so, 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 so long that when this person came along, it was like, you know, someone in the desert being offered a drink. You know, I immediately responded to that and opened up to that and became vulnerable to that. I didn't see it for the red flag that you know, deep down, I knew it was, I was just so, you know, excited that finally something nice was happening to me. I just let myself get carried away. And there's that expression, 
that when you're hungry, you'll eat lies. And I, yes. I relate to that. Yes. And it wasn't, wasn't very long at all until things began to change. And at what point did things start to change? Did you, did, did he live in the same town as you? He lives a mile away from me. I see him every day. In fact, yesterday he smiled and waved at me as he drove by. So tell me about, did it, it move fast and how did it progress? Yeah, so we started spending a lot of time together and then he got a puppy about three months into our relationship and the puppy had me hook, line and sinker. And, you know, I threw myself into caring for the puppy, loving the puppy, bonding with the puppy. I was, I was there every single day, every single night. And so what started to happen was the very subtle put downs, you know, very subtle criticisms. Once, once they've built you up so much and you just yes. soaking in how much, you know, how beautiful you are and how all this stuff. And then, and then that's why they, that's why they affect you so much. Those subtle things, because it's, it's, you want the, you want the old thing back. Yep. So I redoubled my efforts, of course, to be, you know, the perfect caregiver to the dog, the perfect lover to him. You know, he started coercing me into doing all of the domestic duties, but then would, you know, become very upset if they weren't done to his satisfaction, you know, stuff like that became, began very insidiously. And I knew something was a little off when I tried to, you know, set a boundary with him and say, you know what, I'm not comfortable with how you're talking to me right now. You know, can you tell me specifically what it is I'm doing or not doing that's upsetting you so that I can fix it? And he did not like that at all. So, when he pushed back on me, when I was simply trying to say, you know, I don't like the way you're treating me, that's when I started to get a little questioning. But things really started to escalate when not too long into our relationship, he began to demand that I have sex with other people while he watched. And I refused to do so. And did he have, did he have certain people in mind or was it just a general idea at first? Well, he started, he started working it into kind of sex talk you know? And afterwards, once I said, you don't really want that, do you? And he just kind of hesitated and said, no. But then, you know, he kept saying it more and more and more. And finally, I was like, look, you know, I am never going to do this. And this is making me really uncomfortable. So he, without my knowledge, set up an account on Tinder and was corresponding with people trying to recruit them into doing this. And you know, he finally told me one night, hey, I have someone for us. And I'm like, what? And the the bad thing is, is that he happened to leave an after visit summary from a doctor's appointment on the table. And when I went to pick it up so I could set the table for dinner, I saw that he had a sexually transmitted disease. And he did not tell me about that. He took no measures to keep me safe with regards to protection. And I was afraid to tell him that I knew because then I'd be accused of snooping and then things would get nasty. Yeah, but the thing um, is, is that if it was a normal relationship, you would say something. Anybody out there looking at youth, they wouldn't understand that. They like, immediately would say that to the person. But the coercion and walking on eggshells and trying to keep the peace that I could completely relate to what you're saying about why you wouldn't say that. Exactly. Exactly. So I just, you know, I quietly went and got a checkup 
and everything was okay. And, you know, I did that every couple months just to make sure, but I knew he was cheating on me. You know, that was enough to let me know. And also, you know, just certain things in his behavior started to shift. Like suddenly he didn't want me there on Saturday nights, you know, was very eager for me to leave at eight o'clock. I caught him on a Facebook group that, you know, was a public post in my Facebook feed because he had forgotten to change the settings and he was looking for someone to hook up with while on vacation. At that point, I knew I had to extricate myself from the situation. But the issue there was that I loved the dog so much. And, you know, again, me and my bond with animals, and I had raised this puppy right along with him since day one. This dog was just as much mine as it was his. And I knew that when I left, I would never see the dog again. And, you know, it was at a point when I knew that I was about to lose my elderly cat. And it just was very difficult for me to understand that I had to make that sacrifice. You know, I felt like I was making Sophie's choice. And I was, I had to choose myself, or I had to choose the dog. And, you know, when you put it like that, there's no other choice. was, Was there physical abuse in that relationship? Yes. What kind of physical abuse was there? A lot of like holding me down, a lot of getting way up in my face, you know, kind of walking past me and like shoving me, you know, this kind of abuse is very insidious because if someone punches you in the face, you know, that it's domestic abuse and they know it's domestic abuse, but these kind of things would, would lead him to say, I'm not abusing you. And and there's, there's the element of gaslighting there too. Right. It serves the same purpose as the the most extreme kind of violence because you modify your behavior because you're afraid. He would hit me and choke me during and after sex, but tried to say that it was just part of sex. Right. So then you decided you needed to leave and and let's talk about that, how you did that. So it, it just, it got to the point where I there was nothing he said that was kind. There was nothing he said that was nice. You know, he put me down and put me down and put me down. And there were many times when I literally got up and tried to leave, but the dog would follow me to the door and look at me. And I was like, Oh my God, my baby, like I can't walk away. You know, I can't. So one Thursday night, no, I'm sorry. One Wednesday night, I knew that this was it and it had to be done. So before I left, I just cuddled with the dog for a bit and I gave him lots of hugs and kisses and whispered in his ear. And the next morning when my boyfriend called me on his way to work, like he normally does, I was just like, look, you know, here's, here's what I think, you know, I think you're cheating on me. And here's why X, 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 X. And of course there was you're being ridiculous. You're making a mountain out of a molehill. And I just said, look, this is how this is going to go. I said, you and I will not speak again. I have left your Christmas presents and the dog's Christmas presents in the closet. This was three days before Christmas. I want you to have them. I want you to keep them, but don't contact me. I don't want to see you. I don't want to talk to you. I don't ever want to think about you ever again. And I hung up and then I immediately blocked his phone number, blocked him on Facebook, blocked him from email, blocked him from everything I could think of. That, that's important to do. So I had to do it over the phone. 
because I knew that as long as I was in his physical presence or the dog's physical presence, I wouldn't be able to follow through. And blocking is important because you got to keep them out of your head because he knows how to manipulate you. And was there financial abuse in that relationship? Oh, yes. Yes. He made me pay for everything because he said that my being there caused him financial hardship. Typically, I would go over after work and we would eat dinner together because I was already there paying for the dog or caring for the dog. So, you know, the extra food was a burden. The extra electricity was a burden. He didn't have any money. He, you know, couldn't see why I couldn't pull my weight and pay my fair share. So it went from us kind of, you know, alternating who paid for what to me buying all of his groceries, to me contributing towards his electric bill. But, but going back further, in the, when he first met you, was he paying for things for you and was he being generous? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Buying you presents. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that all changed in the blink of an eye. So it's been how long since you, you made that call to him? It was December 22nd, so about four months. My goodness, it's so recent. It's been hard because then my cat passed away. So, you know, that kind of triggered the grief process. You know, I've gotten so good over the years at compartmentalizing my grief and my anger, but losing her kind of triggered all of this to come out. So I feel like I'm going through it all over again right now. Can I ask what you do for a job? I work for an insurance company and I'm a project manager. And do you work from home or do you go to the office? I'm fortunate enough to work from home. Yes. Well, that's fortunate enough on one hand, but on the other hand, you don't get the camaraderie of coworkers, right? And I don't, but I found that since my first abusive relationship, I have a lot of difficulties being around a lot of people, you know, I get sensory overload. I'm still extremely jumpy. You know, if I have headphones on, you know, someone will come up behind me and tap me on the shoulder and I'll jump 3000 feet and they think that's funny. But for me, it's not. People at work don't understand people who have survived something like this and really are sensitive to being around crowds and negative energy. After you made that call, were you ever tempted to call him again? And did you miss him in the beginning? Well, true confessions time. I, about a month ago, actually sent him an email, a very long email. And I know that that completely violates the rules of breaking up with a narcissist because you're supposed to go no contact because you don't want to give them the satisfaction of knowing that they're still on your minds. And I know that. But I felt that, you know, all of this grief and all of this anger and all of this rage that I am feeling is not mine. He put that on me and it needs to go back to him. I don't want to carry that weight anymore. It needs to go where it belongs, which is with him. So I wrote him a very long email and I was just like, this is what you are. This is what I know you are. This is what I know about you. This is what I know that you were doing the whole time we were together. Here's all the evidence that I have. And, you know, I did everything in the world for you. And all you did was abuse me. You're an abuser. You are a malignant, covert narcissist. You put this gigantic hole in my heart. 
And you furthermore knew what had already happened to me. And yet you did the exact same thing. You know, essentially you are the lowest form of human being that I've ever met in my life. And by writing this email, I am giving myself the peace and the closure that I deserve. So I sent it and I immediately reblocked him. It just, it made me feel better. Good. Are you worried for other women that he's going to, that are going to be? Yes. Yes. I am very worried for other women because he's handsome. He can be very charming. You know how these men are. What field is he in? What kind of professional field? He is an auto mechanic. When did you start your blog? I started working on it in January. It was a true labor of love because I was doing all of the, you know, website building by myself and I had no experience with that sort of thing, but it gave me a positive direction in which to channel my energy. And, you know, I'm not looking to be like, you know, Rachel Hollis, <laughs> but, you know, I wouldn't be upset if I was Rachel Hollis, but, you know, my motivation in writing the blog is simply to educate people. I try to do it with a sense of humor, but there are some things that simply can't be joked about and abuse is one of them. So I'm just hoping that if I share my experiences and if even one person reads about those experiences and thinks twice before, you know, saying I love you back or giving someone money or going out on a second date or letting someone talk them into something they don't want to do, then I'll have done my job. Do you, do you mention his name in your blog? I do not because I don't know how libel or defamation work, and I don't want to find myself in the subject of a lawsuit. Is there anything else that you would like to to say that you think that you might want to say? I would just put a word of caution out there to those who are dating online, just because it's so easy for people to hide behind the internet, to hide behind a profile, to hide behind a computer. And the other thing that I've noticed about online dating is it's really easy to create a false sense of intimacy, a false sense that, you know, you really know each other, that you've been vulnerable with one another. But until you're in the presence of this person and have the opportunity to really, you know, check out how they interact with others, how do they treat you in person? How do they speak to other people, you know, and really get a chance to check out their energy and most importantly, look into their eyes. The eyes of a narcissist will never lie. They are flat. They are cold. They are dead. There is nothing yes. there. Yes. My ex, the one thing that I, the one feature, even as long when I was like enamored of him, you know, his eyes were black and flat. Like they were very dark brown. They were flat. And that's exactly right. Like I, I, I never liked his eyes. His eyes were, were the ugliest part about him. The other thing I'd like to say is really know yourself know what your boundaries are and understand what a healthy relationship is and what a healthy relationship is not, what love looks like and what love doesn't look like. I have a post on my blog dedicated just to that topic. If you see anything that does not go along with your boundaries, with your values or your vision of what you know love is and what love is not, then you need to turn and walk away as fast as possible. Don't walk, run. Thank you, Amy. If you have any questions or comments for Amy or for me, 
please get in touch with me at hello at findingourvoices.net. Now I would like to welcome back Mandy. Mandy is from the Ellsworth area and was the guest of my May 14th, 2021 episode of this WERU radio show, where the theme was police response to domestic abuse. On April 10th, Mandy was one of seven survivors connected to Finding Our Voices who testified in Augusta on behalf of LD-692. This bill would restrict the early release from jail of domestic abusers in something called the Community Confinement Monitoring Program that, surprise, surprise, does not monitor or confine. I learned about this program when a young woman reached out to me on Facebook to see if I could find out why the person who strangled her was posting on social media a week into his nine-month sentence. Another feature of this community confinement monitoring program that we are trying to put restrictions on with this bill is that, again, surprise, surprise, the victims are not notified as they are supposed to be when the violent perpetrators who are gunning for them receive these get-out-of-jail free cards. I asked Mandy to read the testimony that she presented. Welcome, Mandy. Mandy, can you explain why you decided to come and testify for Bill 692? You drove a fair distance and I'm just wondering why it was important to you. Um, it was about a little, about a two hour drive um, from my house to the Augusta State House. I'm very passionate about trying to help change laws that are gonna protect victims and stay safe. And I know that one thing that helped me not go back was my abuser being in jail for a year. So what was the experience like? Was it what you expected it to be? Um, I was very nervous driving there, but once I got there, I had several surviving sisters with me whom I'd never met prior to, to um, that day, but just having other women there that had been through similar situations and being able to hear them talk about how important it was for them for this bill to be passed. It gave me a little more courage, I think. And I was one of the last ones to speak. So I think I got my, you know, my nerves out by then. So then after I left, it was a little emotional, but I I felt good on the way home. I'm hoping that things change. Do you want to say anything about how the abuse lingers past separation? It's definitely not something that once you walk away, you're free from. Um, You just don't have to deal with the bruises, the black and blue bruises. You just have mental stuff that you have to deal with. And then it goes into when you have kids, how it affects them. And if they have a relationship with their other parent, um, it's definitely an emotional roller coaster for sure. There's been some mountains to climb. How many years have you been out? Uh, It'll be seven years this year. Definitely still being mentally abused, um, financially abused for sure. He doesn't pay child support. He's got a court order for child support. He doesn't pay it. I mean, once in a while, I'll see 25 bucks come just pop up randomly. Um, he's gone to court several times for that, but he just skirts around it. He can definitely use his income as non-income because he's a fisherman. So he doesn't really have anything to claim. He doesn't pay taxes. So he's been able to talk to DHS and let them know that he doesn't make money and he has two little kids at home. When I know he does, I see him, I see him on the, on the flats digging often. I see him at the store cashing checks. I know he's making big money. 
he was supposed to serve a lot of time and he got very little time. And I think one yes. of the conditions was that if that is that he paid child support and he support you and that if he doesn't, his ass is back in jail. Yeah. I mean, he had five counts, five elevated, aggravated domestic violent charges. And one of them was against the children. So it just blows my mind that he can still skirt around it. They don't even, I don't even think they look at it. I really don't even think they take that into account. How are you helping me? You know, all you're doing is helping him. Oh, he doesn't have the money. Or, oh, well, what about me? You know, I mean, I'm facing being evicted because I'm not able to pay my rent, my lights and my car payment and, you know, everything to help support our children. And he's, you know, just, they, they're just laying it off on him. Like he doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like he has almost $30,000 in debt with child support. <laughs> like why, how has that gotten to be that huge, you know? There's no consideration for the victim of domestic violence. I mean, what There's consideration none. are you getting right now as the victim of this, of the domestic violence yeah. and the crime? What consideration, yeah. Yeah, as you said, they're not, it looks like they're not even looking at that DHHS or any of these agencies. All they tell me when I call is if you need extra help, go to um, this place to ask for money or go to your local churches and go to the, I shouldn't have to. If he's paying his, you know, $90 a week child support, that would be a huge help. Huge help. So basically, he's not, he's a domestic abuser. He got off with, I don't even know what to call it. It's more than a sweetheart deal. It's just, well, it is Gosh. a sweetheart deal. So and it wasn't his first offense either. It wasn't. And no. he's just flagrantly not paying you child support and they're not treating it. They're not doing anything about it. No one's doing anything about it. No, they'll take him to court. They'll they'll have another hearing. I can go to court if I want to talk, you know, tell the judge my side of the story, but who does that? Who's going to go to a courthouse where you almost, I mean, he strangled me, literally. Like, he, he choked me, strangled me, um, held me hostage. Why do I want to go into, I don't care if it's a courthouse. I don't care if you say you can protect me. I, I avoid anything. I avoid the local store. I, I avoid him in my presence at all costs. So I'm not going to go to court and be in the same courtroom. I don't care if there's court marshals or state police or anything. It's, I'm not gonna do it. Don't so. you think that there should be some kind of bill or in Maine where if a person is a convicted domestic abuser that is flagged on their the civil side of the child support? Yeah. It's furtherly abusing you. And it's not even just abusing me, it's abusing the children too. Um, it's child it's abuse. Like, it's abusing yeah. the children and yeah. My youngest is, you know, she just turned 18 recently, but for over these years, she, the way that she's looked at it, dad can't even pay, you know, 25, $50 a week. He clearly doesn't love me. And that's how she, that's how she interprets it is he's not helping me. You know, I need new sneakers or whatever, and he's not helping. And she looks at it as he doesn't love her and she cries over it. She's very sad over it. And that again is abusing you because when, yes. when you see that, that that's hurting you and he well knows that it's hurting you. Don't absolutely. You absolutely. Oh, he, he absolutely knows it. Okay. So change. And this is one step yeah. to change. So um, Mandy, could you read for us what you testified for bill 692? My name is Amanda. I live in the Ellsworth area and I'm a domestic violence survivor. I'm here today in support of LB 692. I was in a 20-year relationship that started when I was 15 years old. I suffered every type of, of abuse that only grew worse as the years went by. Like most survivors, I left him but went back more than once. 
I knew what he was doing was wrong, but I stayed or went back to him out of fear that what he might do if I stayed away. He had convinced me that I would suffer worse or that my family would suffer if I left him permanently. The mind games that he played were unbelievably terrifying. He would tell me I was his and no one else would ever have me. He threatened not only my life, but our children's, my parents, and even my grandmother's. Each time that I was brave enough to leave, he would do anything to contact me, cry, and beg for my forgiveness. After making false promises, just to make me feel weak and sorry for him. When I would go back, the abuse only grew worse than the time before. The first PFA was in 2014. I was free for just over two months. He began talking to our son, and he convinced him that he had gone to rehab, he was sober and going to therapy and was working on himself to be a better man for his family. He begged our son for all of us to come home and be a family again. He broke that PSA more than once. He called me from an unknown number that I answered not knowing it was him. He knew that all it would take was me to hear his voice and for him to beg and cry for him to come back. He knows how important family is to me and always used that to his advantage. Finally, I agreed to at least go to his house to have a talk. That talk only made me weaker to his lies. Less than 24 hours later, I was at the courthouse asking to drop the PFA. To my surprise, that PFA was easier to drop than it was to get a few months prior. Things were okay for a few weeks until I suspected him of drug use again. The fights and threats grew quickly, but only worse than ever before. By June of that year, 2015, I discovered that he was an IV addict. I begged him to get help and to quit. He refused and threatened my life daily if I left him again. By the end of that summer, our oldest two kids moved in with my parents to escape the daily abuse. Our youngest, who was 10 at the time, refused to leave my side because she, quote, Daddy won't hurt you as badly if I'm here, Mommy, end quote. With her little sweet, innocent voice saying those words to me, I knew I had to do something and be smart about it. For months, I planned a way out, knowing that if I didn't set up a safety plan, one day he would kill me and most likely in front of her. On December 4, 2015, was the closest he had gotten to take in my, my life along with our kids and my mom's lives. By the grace of God, I was finally able to outsmart him, staying three steps ahead of him, but not before being held hostage for hours at knife point and seeing the fear in my kid's eyes as he screamed at them, saying that he was going to kill us all enduring, and enduring the worst abuse yet. I was able to sneak away once he fell asleep, which was not an easy task as he had blocked the doors and screwed the windows shut. I ran to my neighbor's house and she drove me to a family member's house. That was when I heard all the sirens going towards his house. My safety plan was in place and it was actually working. I couldn't believe it. I should have felt relief at that moment, but all I felt was extreme fear as he was going to get away somehow and get to me. He went to jail and was held without bail until that Monday morning. His lawyer fought to get him bail using me and my lack of credibility against me because I had left before and returned more than once. So I must not be that scared. My lawyer knew how important it was for the safety of me and my children for him to stay in jail. He had five felony domestic violence charges. The court sentenced him to only a year after facing up to 25. He served 11 months. Had he been released, I know he would have contacted me and gotten into my head again to convince me how sorry he was and would never do it again. Those 11 months gave me time to heal, learn, and grow and how, how manipulative and abusive he was. I finally was finally was able to stay away from him. I am proud to say that 12-4-2015 was the very last time that I had suffered abuse from him. Thank you all for listening to a tiny piece of my story. It's truly an honor to be here today, standing up for all domestic violence survivors. Thank you, Mandy. We just got to keep talking about this. It can't be quiet. I, I just think it's people don't know. Like, I think a lot of yeah. people just don't know. 
I mean, it's not talked about. You know, I think a lot of survivors for a long time felt like they were alone. And when you're alone against the world, who's going to say anything? But when you have all these other women that are like, I'm, I'm not weak. I'm not quiet. And all of us together, we're loud, which is good. Thank you, Mandy. And if what Amy and Mandy and I were talking about sounds familiar, or if someone you know is going through domestic abuse, or you suspect they are, say something. Advocates who understand it and believe you are available 24-7 by calling the Confidential Domestic Violence Hotline run by the Maine Coalition to End Domestic Violence. Phone number is 1-866-834-HELP. And the Sisterhood of Survivors that is Finding Our Voices, a movement I started three years ago upon the DV arrest of my husband of 29 years, is here for you too. Check us out at findingourvoices.net and feel free to email me directly, Patricia McLean, President Founder of Finding Our Voices, at hello at findingourvoices.net. Join us next month on WERU for Let's Talk About It, second Friday of the month at 4 p.m. And until then, remember, love should feel good. It's been a long, long time. It's been a long, hard road. Finally, I am feeling sure of what I know. I try to speak my mind.